This is Paul Wexler, and you're listening to No Good Music. It's cold this Sunday morning. My shoes are wet with dew. Drizzle around, I don't make no sound. Gliding past those hookers, too. A special guest with us today. He's a producer, singer, songwriter, pianist. His band Wax Wax recently released their debut album Swept Away. And let's welcome to No Good Music, Mr. Paul Wexler. Ah. The crowd goes wild. Uh, You're you in know, California, correct? That's right. We're, we're my wife and I moved from New Jersey to the Bay Area ago because her younger daughter had a baby okay. which we have had the pleasure of taking care of one day a week for the last six years mm-hmm. <laughs> and so uh, it's been a crime out here and i just go back to new york and perform like a few times a year so i still get to keep up my new york shows okay now are you from new jersey are you from no California? i'm originally from, from long island i grew up i grew up on uh, on long island and uh but I've lived all over, you know, I've, I've lived in Manhattan, I've lived in Los Angeles, I've lived in San Francisco, uh, I've spent time in Florida, you know, I've been in a lot of different places. And you, you lived near the Clinton area at one point. That is correct. <laughs> that is correct. Nine eleven. 9-11, um, I pay really close attention to what people from the agency and former people from the agency say. And some of them were dropping that they thought there was going to be another thing mm-hmm. after 9-11. No, they didn't say it publicly, but yeah. they kind of hinted around it. And so I moved out of Jersey City and moved out, you know, because I was like, okay, I don't want to be this close if there's another thing. Because where I lived on the Palisade, I walked over from my house, a very short walk to the edge of the Palisade, where I could see Tower Number 2 had fallen. And tower number one was still burning. And it, it's something I actually wish I had never looked at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's an image uh, that I'm not that fond of. I don't think anybody would forget. Even, even if you didn't live in that area, you know, just horrible. I was working that day. And uh, I remember it clearly because I was helping a band in North Carolina. They were a jam band called Bessie May's Dream, a very talented musicians. And, um, and I got them some radio play and stuff and a bunch of gigs. I booked them into seven niches over the course of a year down in the Carolinas in Virginia. But I was doing a poster for one of the shows when the second plane hit. I was in a, this, a Staples. <laughs> and oh, okay. I stout to not in particular. We should have killed that uh, Bin Laden when we had the chance. Yeah. Because um, I knew immediately that it was him. I'm very focused on this sort of thing. So. Do you remember meeting meeting me at my print shop? I do remember you looking at your ago. face. I remember. Yeah. Yes, I do. I think we <laughs> talked briefly about music, and I told you I'd pl- I play guitar, but I don't play professionally. And you in- right. invited me 
to come to your house to jam. And I was, I don't know, I wasn't comfortable because I'm not that great. So I never took you up. It on doesn't matter. Stuff. It doesn't matter. You play the chords, you know, you know, yeah. when I started out, I, I got myself this page of C chords. It was a full page of every potential C chord, not just the C seventh, but every diminished C chords and the augmented C chords and every mm -hmm. possible one. And I figured out what each one was. And then I couldn't grab them yet, but I figured out what they were. And then yeah. I moved on to start D minor and went up the scale over the course of the next two months because I was determined when I started to have more musical now than just with the basic blues chords. I watched this uh, Keith uh, Richards thing on Chuck Berry, Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll. I don't know if you've seen it. It's very entertaining no, uh, document. It's mm -hmm. worth watching. And uh, there's a scene in it uh, where Chuck Berry and his player go into this little studio and they record this song from the 40s, a Broadway song called A Cottage for Sale. And mm -hmm. it's, it's a little, it's, but anyway, the point is, I thought to myself, wow, these guys who invented rock and roll, like Chuck Berry and, and a, whole, a whole bunch of other guys in the 50s, they didn't have rock and roll to play when they first started because they haven't invented it. So they knew all this material from a pre-rock and roll era. And I was determined to be able to master those songs because I won't have that same base of knowledge that these other guys had when they invented rock and roll. Musicians always um, are influenced by, you know, other musicians. So, you know, the, oh yeah, no doubt. There's people like, you know, Buddy Holly and Eddie Cochran and, and those, they were influenced by maybe blues. And I don't think rockabilly was pretty much maybe invented rockabilly, but no, not yet. You know, yeah. you'd be surprised these guys all could, they could all play, you know, obviously country was an influence on people and, and that on rockabilly musicians, you know, and people like yeah. Hank Williams, mm -hmm. you know, but, but anyway, I grew up listening to a lot of rhythm and blues because my father was one of the partners at Atlantic Records. Oh, wait, I can hear Matt. Yeah. I can hear them. It's nice and clear. Do you know... About hold on a minute. He's in, but he doesn't know he's, he's, he's talking to something. I just texted him. Hey there, Matt. What's your name? Matt, I can hear you. Matt, it is entertaining. I can hear what? you. What? I could hear you. I you can, can hear, hear me. Conversation. Yeah, we can hear you now. Wow. Yeah, whatever you did, you, you did it. Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay, okay. Uh, you guys sound Great. Nice. Uh, you know, Paul, you got naturally, you got a great voice there. If you want to ask a question, raise your hand. Okay. Like in school. I'm just telling you. I don't get it. You're being funny, right? <laughs> in serious. No. Okay. So, Paul. But you can hear me. Yeah. You can yeah. hear me now. Yeah. Yeah. So, Paul, uh, you brought up your father. I wanted, uh, if we could, talk a little bit about your father. And for our listeners, if you don't know, Paul's father was Jerry Wexler. It's a huge part of music history. He was a partner at Atlantic Records. He helped discover Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, Led Zeppelin. He did sign Led Zeppelin. Also, he incredibly, he came up, he coined the term rhythm and blues, your father. That is correct. Well, you know, in the 40s, the, what we call the 
rhythm and blues charts now were known as the race charts. And they called okay. these records race records. And at a certain point after World War II, that began to have a, an odor that was a little unpleasant. Mm -hmm. And uh, the editor of Billboard, where my father worked at the time, he was a writer for Billboard, Paul Ackerman, who I was named after, said, we have to change the name of the chart. Mm -hmm. And my father just came up with it. Well, how about rhythm and blues? And wow. I guess it stuck. <laughs> wow. Nice. So I, I imagine your father was a huge influence on uh, you stepping into the you know, music industry, the recording industry. The, the truth is, is that he was grooming my sister, my older sister, Anita, for the business. He wasn't really grooming me, although being mm -hmm. around him was a form of of uh trained and just listening to him talk about music he would play music all the time in the house he would come home with the work from atlantic and be checking it all the time i mean i remember when he came back from muscle shoals with a test cut they used to call acetates mm -hmm. of ever loved a man the very first aretha franklin record it was the wow. first time i'd ever heard aretha franklin because i hadn't listened to her columbia stuff or her gospel stuff before that and I was completely shocked by the record. I was, I was stunned by the record. And uh, I'll give you another example of this. When I was very young in elementary school, they had folk singers come by and, and play in, like a lot of folky material, you know, for, for us kids. And one of the songs played was Down in the Valley. And a few years after I heard this, my father cut a version of Down in the Valley with Solomon Burke. It's a great record. And, and I remember thinking, oh, this is what my dad did. He makes these songs that are pretty good, really good. <laughs> hey, so for uh, when you say folk, uh, was it kind of a country folk, uh, that sort of thing? No, I mean, there was a folk movement in the early 60s that mm -hmm. was very prominent. I mean, there were a lot of folk artists and um, and there was a mixture of different things. You know, there were there were artists like Lead Belly, you know, with Goodnight Irene and that sort of thing. And then there were country influences in folk music, you know, sea chanties. I mean, it was a, it was a really a huge influence on, on rock and roll. I mean, many of the, the the San Francisco Bay Area groups like the Jefferson Airplane had folk roots. You know, so it was, it, you know, and, 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 and the bitter end in Manhattan was the major folk venue at the time. This is really before my time. And the truth is, is that although I was exposed to it, I was never really a folky, you know, because um, I, I was in the house. It was mostly rhythm and blues. Yeah. Yeah. I actually had a question here. If, if he ever brought music home and I thought the answer would be no, you know, so that's, that's really <laughs> cool. Me? I mean, the, the, my father, no, he did all the time, you know, and, and, and he was working constantly. He worked mm -hmm. round the clock. He was the first person I ever knew that, that in our neighborhood that had a phone with buttons instead uh -huh. of a dial. First person that I knew in our neighborhood that had a multi-line phone in the house. Mm -hmm. And he was running in the early 60s and the 50s, the sales department and the promotion department and also doing the daily op in the office and recording at night. Mm, I mean, wow. he, his work ethic was unbelievable. <laughs> wow. And is, and is that, on, uh, is that at, on Long Island? Is that the home in Long Island? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, the, we, we grew, I grew up in Great Neck. That, that was the mm -hmm. house where I grew up. Yeah. In, so, yes. yeah. 
so you know um once i once i once i i started at about 13 i really started to buy records a lot when i was 13 and i started developing my own interests and there were bands that were not on atlantic and and you know were not r&b you know uh bands like the who and the doors and Jimi hendrix and so you know like anybody i i developed identity you know mm-hmm. i just wasn't a a copy of my father's identity yeah yeah i think we all do that too yeah we think about you know ourselves uh you know, each person when you're developing that at age 13 and you know rob turned me on to a lot of things uh this would have been uh 1977 78. i, I was lucky in 77 to be in england working with van morrison on the on the wavelength record and mm-hmm. um i jumped if you want i can tell you about, well well let's go chronologically though yeah. if you like it's it's up to you guys it might be good for the listeners you know it puts it all together that way chronologically sure well i had one more question about your father is if he ever brought you to work like bring you you know not that work. often again it was my older sister that was was at most of the sessions now at a certain point, I made a decision that I was going to be in the music business. It was very late on. I was like 20, mm-hmm. you know, 19 or 20. I realized that I had ears and I was like, oh, well, I guess you're fated to do it. And I thought to myself, you are going to get an enormous amount of crap from people for going into this business. Yeah. People are going to think you are it. People are going to look down on you. You're going to get a lot of crap. And I said, well, you know what? That's the nature of life. And uh, I'm ready for it. Yeah. And, and so I never let it bother me. But I will say two things. One, when I was living in the Bay Area in 1975, I became friends with David Grisman. Uh, my father was working on an album. Uh, now, what's the name of that artist? She had that big record, Betty Davis Eyes. Um, oh, Kim Carnes. <laughs> Yeah, Kim, Kim Carnes. And he was working yeah. on this. He was working on a record with her in Muscle Shoals, and uh, he called me up and he said, "Do you know any man, mandolin players?" And I happened to know David Grisman. And well, you know, I just happened to know this guy mm-hmm. <laughs> who's pretty good, you know. And so we flew into Muscle Shoals, and David did his part. And uh, after I, 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 I saw sessions in Los Angeles where he worked with Doctor John on the Gumbo record, which is one of the great New Orleans records. And uh, I also work on one of the Dylan records in uh, in Muscle Shoals. Okay. So I was there later on for a bunch of his work as opposed to earlier on. So let's talk about Van Morrison. 1978, it was his 10th studio album, Wavelength. Mm-hmm. And you were... Let me go sequentially. Oh, okay. Let me go sequentially. Sure. I, was, I, I got a job working for Mo Austin to do quality assurance. To try to basically make sure the records didn't skip. Mm-hmm. and that the cassettes didn't sound like they were underwater. And while <laughs> it was challenging, it was a very isolated job. I isolated from the important parts of the company. When I distributed the test pressings, I would have contact with other people in the company. And I called my dad and said, boy, it's pretty isolated down here in this job. And he goes, cream rises. That's what he told me, cream mm-hmm. rises. Mm-hmm. So I thought, it took me a while, but I thought, well, you know, I was a Grateful Dead fan, and there's this one show we used to trade from 1970 at Harper College, which is now SUNY Binghamton. And I thought to myself, if I could get a good copy of this from the Grateful Dead and put it out on Warner Brothers, I could sell millions of it. And so I made a deal, 
Well, I, first I went to Mo Austin, and he knew I was a, a fan of the band. So he says, you go do it, Paul. I think you can do it, which was very kind and generous of him. And so I met with Big Garcia. They were working on their concert film. And uh, he said, wow, Paul, we were trying to figure out how to get the money to finish the record. And now here you are. And I met with Jerry a number of times in the past. And so uh, I made a proposition. Give me this tape. And we'll release it and I'll give you 70 grand and you can finish. Mm-hmm. The, he said, great. Now, <laughs> like, the, like the fool that I was, as green as grass, I gave him the money without simultaneously the tapes at the same moment. And I never got the tapes. Uh, and I, I, I called wow. up their lawyer, this, this San Francisco lawyer named Hal Cant. And I said, Hal, what the, you know, I don't know if I want to curse on the podcast. I said, what yeah, the and um, well, I did. I did use a swear word. And he goes, "Well, you know how they are, Paul." And so I was like, they were sort of piratical a little bit. And even though hippies think they were all peace and love, they had a lot of edge to what they did and bought, as well as being, you know, the epitome of the hippie band. And so I, I thought, well, I'm screwed here. I'm screwed. I, I don't have this money to give back to my wife. What the hell? And uh, then I just started going through the vaults. And I, I found this dark star, this studio dark star that no one knew about. And I put what I thought of as the best of the Warner years and hired Rick Griffin to do the cover. Again, I'd never done any of this before. <laughs> I had no input from the band or anybody. And um, I was 23. And I called the record, What a Long Strange Trip It's Been. And the band is still selling it now 50 years later. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it sold, it made 20 million. It sold, it sold a million. <laughs> copies initially at $20 a copy. It was a three record set. So I made the $70,000 back and then a couple mm-hmm. of extra nickels. Nice. Yeah. And, and at the time, and I got nothing, literally, I just got salary, which was very little at the time um, for doing this. And, the, and I realized that if you don't start like kicking and screaming, you don't get anything. Yeah. So, so listen to the Van Morrison wavelength record. Okay. Mm-hmm. Where uh, one of the people at Warner is this product manager named Pete Johnson. He's like, hey, Paul, Van's trying to put together the take record. And you did such a good job in the vaults with this Grateful Dead record. Why don't you work on it? And I go, great. Working with Van Morrison. That, that's great. I, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd love to do that. <laughs> and so we started pulling all the tapes together. And we went to Brothers Studio, which was in Santa Monica, which was the Beach Boys studio. And I met Dennis Wilson there, which was like so freaking exciting, wow, like the cool. actual surfing beach boy, you know, that was like for me, it was a big deal. And, uh, and he was way cool. I can tell you, it just had such charisma and coolness about him. And uh, so we took all the tapes and we went to England to this studio, studio in Oxfordshire that was owned by Virgin Records called The Manor. And it was in an English manor house where like the Lord Ha Ha used to live. You know? yeah. And so these people were, <laughs> spend extra money recording to record to, to, when they're not recording to be in this manor house. So I was like, to me, it seemed crazy. Why waste your money on that? You yeah, know, yeah. But, but people had money and they wasted it. So, so Van, we put the first song on and Van goes in to sing it recorded years earlier it was an outtake never released and it's in the wrong key the key is outside of his vocal range and so he he's like he goes this is like whipping a dead horse you know it could get very <laughs> intense at times and he, he walks out of the studio and i thought well here we go 
this is a disaster. He doesn't want to continue, and we've spent all this money. You know, it's the same thought I always have. Here comes another disaster. And so uh, I thought about it for a minute, and I, when he was alone, I took him aside, and I said, listen, Van, this might feel like you're spending Warner's money right now because you're in the red to Warner Brothers. It was in the red after several years of unsuccessful records. And I said, but with your catalog, meaning Moondance and St. Dominic's Preview, with your catalog, you are going to be in the black eventually, which mm -hmm. means that the money we're spending now are coming out of your future royalties. We are actually spending your money. And I said, now, we got six weeks booked at this studio. And if I just cancel now, you're going to lose a bunch of money on nothing. I said, do something. Record demos. Use the time. <laughs> Don't just waste it. It's your time. And so we started we started uh, woodshedding different visions, uh, rehearsing and, and, and checking out different guys. Um, I guess you would say auditioning almost. And we ended up with a fantastic band. And he cut the wavelength record there. And it was amazing. And there was this whole punk rock thing going on at the time that was very, very, I don't want to use the word threatening, but challenging to older English musicians. And it really right. ran in the punk rock movement. Like one time I met Ringo and I was wearing a, a Ramones t-shirt and he goes, oh, so this is a lot that's going to replace us then. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, 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 went, I went to see The Clash in 1977 in the Rainbow Theater in London. And it was an amazing show. And I had a couple of tickets and I had one of the staff from the, uh, from, from the manor there. There's someone, this lady that worked there, the Scottish lady. And so we get back to the studio and Van goes, how was it? And I go, yeah, it was pretty good. And she goes, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah, fucking loved it. You wouldn't shut up about it all the way back from London. <laughs> and it, you know, so I didn't want to get him, I didn't want to get him too antsy about it. So when he cut Wavelength, yeah. it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen an artist do in my life. The vocal came out of him like a force of nature. I mean, he got in basically one take. I mean, the whole thing. I was like, and then when he finished the take, he ran across the top of the board and he kicked the empty tape box with this really hard <laughs> soccer kick across the studio. And he screamed out, fuck this punk rock shit. Like, I'm still great. Yeah. I haven't yeah. superseded yet. Yeah. You know, I'm still strong. Yeah. You know, what the, the, the clash, excuse me, the, the clash of draw from, from Van Morrison and what he's doing. And, and uh, you know, Rob and I would have gone from the, that, that rock scene, the classic rock scene, to, to seeing, experiencing, you know, some of, this, uh, some of this alternative, and it wasn't called alternative yet, but the punk and then the new wave. You know, I didn't have time for Van Morrison. That wasn't my path. And that's the, uh, that's the, um, the divergence you're talking about, right? Yeah, you know, change, and, and, but mm -hmm. music is music. I mean, I got a couple of stories I got to do quickly. But my father recorded one of the first rock and roll records by Big Joe Turner called Shake, Rattle, and Roll. Mm -hmm. It's a classic rock and roll record. It's, but it was a black record. It was a rhythm and blues record. My rock and roll, in my opinion, started out as rhythm and blues. You know, yeah. the great Agreed. But, but a lot of my father's friends who were jazzers, like my father, from the 30s, when they heard the record, they said, what the hell is this? It's mm -hmm. not music. There's nothing <laughs> musical about it. It's a terrible record. In other words, change is always shocking 
to people mm -hmm. right. when it happens. It's always shocking. Now, when I was living in L.A., you know, I was I, I, I saw a whole bunch of bands that I promoted at Warner Brothers. I mean, I didn't have a position, but I would talk them up anyway. The, the Gang of Four, I know I had something to do with them getting signed. Devo, I talked up Devo a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I went to clubs all the time in the 70s in Los Angeles. And one of the bands I started seeing was the Go-Go's. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine, John Ingham, who had worked with Generation X and, and, and was the first person to interview the Sex Pistols in London for uh, Sounds or maybe NME. He told me, he, he said, these Go-Go's, you got it. And so I decided to take them into the studio. And uh, we went to the Warner's Amigo studio where it was like James Taylor and uh, um, Randy Newman and, and artists like that had been recording for Warner's. And the, and the staff, they were scared of them because they were so punk rock back then. <laughs> they really were punky. This is before their image was like glammed up for the, you know, for public consumption. You know, we, la we laugh at this because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to buy the Go-Go's album, you know, because of that reason. Yeah, right. But, but you heard, but I sent you the single I did. Of oh, I, I've heard it. Yeah, I think even before yeah. you sent it to me, I knew about it. I knew about the, yeah. But I wanted to ask you: Was this this was their first time in a recording studio? Is this correct? Yeah, first time in a recording okay, studio. Okay. Yes. And wow. uh, and it, it was great. So the record was released by Stiff Records, and it started to go up the dance chart because there's this thing called Rock Pool that would send records out to different dance clubs that would play rock inflected mm -hmm. dance music. And so it actually got to number 14 on the Billboard dance chart, this oh, wow. version. Of the yeah. And I called up Stiff Records at an office in New York, and I talked to this lady that was working there, and I go, do you know you're going up the, the dance chart with this record? And she goes, oh, I must go call Dave, which was Dave Robinson, who ran Stiff, mm -hmm. who signed Elvis Costello and a whole bunch of great mm -hmm. artists initially. They had no idea. They weren't working the record. It just went up on its own because of its own merits. Wow. You know, wow. so I would like to talk a little bit about my record, just a little bit, if, unless you guys have some other questions. You well, want I was going to gonna ask first. you one more thing, and then we'll get into your album. You sent me today an award, and I want to talk because oh, that yeah. was that was around 1992, Stone Temple Pilots Core, and you got an award yes. for I think it was a million sales. Was it a million? Yeah, I'll tell you exactly yeah. what happened. Okay. They got to the label, and the label had been the end of metal. Atlantic had been a big metal label in the 80s, you know, and, mm -hmm. um, and that was dying. And Phil Collins was king the label at the time. And so when Stone Temple Pilots showed up and did a showcase at the label, I thought, wow, these guys are great. This is like the first band where I'm like impressed by them in a long time at the label. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, I told them how much I liked them. And my job at the time, believe it or not, after making all the records, my job at the time was to write the promotional materials that went out to newspapers and radio stations yeah. and, and wherever, MT. And so I was interviewing the guys about the record. And I'd listen to the record, and I'd listen to the first single, that sex-type thing record, mm -hmm. where they're going, where Scott's going, I know, I know, you shouldn't yeah. have worn that dress. And I'm listening to it, and I'm going, that's my image of Scott. Yeah. And, and I'm going, oh, holy shit, what is he saying about this girl? It, she shouldn't have worn a dress? And it, it sounds yeah. like some crazy race, like justifying rape. 
and mm-hmm. and I and I so I asked them. I said, "What's up with this song? Why did what is this lyric about?" And they go, "We hate the guy that this song about. We revile him." And I said, okay, okay. And I put Mm -hmm. that like very near the top of the bio because it turns out that MTV was just about to reject their video because of that lyric. And and so in my lowly position of writing this hacky fucking stuff to send out as Mm -hmm. movie material, I actually managed to help them. Yeah. So to be clear, so that that those words are referring to someone else that they... That, that they, they don't like exactly yeah. right and and that they revile yeah and that's what i put in their bio mm-hmm. and that's what actually it caused i shortcuted this problem that was starting to develop already. yeah yeah great you know <laughs> and that's why they gave me the record so you know my attitude is always the same in the business i'm and within the capacity as much as i can i'm going to try to help the artists i'm working with mm-hmm. right you yeah. know because yeah, yeah. what else is it about, really? I mean, you want mm-hmm. your company to make, obviously, you can't succeed without some, you know. And if you believe sales. and if you believe in it, believe in the music, because like you said, you saw Stone Temple Pilots and you were like, this was the first band in a while I've seen yeah. that's really, you know. You know, here's the thing. Talking to it's me. My job, it was my job to help artists, no matter what they were like. Okay. I mean, I wrote positive things about Wind Beneath My Wings. <laughs> by Pat Hitler, okay? Because because <laughs> it was a it was a it was on Atlantic, and it was my job to help. You know, right, I'm not right. gonna. What yeah. what am I gonna say? I think this record is corny. Yeah, you know, there, I mean, there's a lot of people, women who love that song. Yes, there's a, there's people who love it. Yes, right, right, and and you know what? You know, listen. If you want to be hierarchical about music, then we should all only be listening to Mozart. You mm. know, and and that's that. <laughs> You know, so I, 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 I I tend to not be hierarchical because Mm -hmm. my opinion isn't any better than anyone else's really. I don't see myself Mm -hmm. like, yeah, you know, it's my taste. I I went out last night and saw a band. This is uh, Stephanie Chow and, and she's a composer, singer, saxophone player. She's not just a musician. So I'm watching her and four guys. They are all reading music. This is right. this is jazz classical brought together. It's so excellent. But yeah. I'm like that drummer because I'm a drummer. That drummer is reading everything. That is so different than than this other you know, here's world, where all you the just R- play what you feel. All the R and B charts on Atlantic in the fifties. All the records that were made in the fifties, like Shake Rattle and Roll, and uh, you know all the Drifters records, Clyde McFadder. All the hits in Atlantic, all the R&B 50s hits, many of which didn't cross over, were all charts. The the the, the sessions were all charted. Every single part mm-hmm. was charted, believe it wow. or not. You know, that's yeah. the way they used to do it. I can't imagine that. It's just, I, you know, I don't read music and I don't play that way. So I'm not a jazz no. musician. So, yeah, that's that blew my I, mind. I, it's a different, different level. It's different. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's another way of approaching it. Right, right. Yeah. So let's uh, talk about your music. Let me just start that a long time ago, over 20 years ago, I thought to myself, you know, you've been running music in your head for your entire life and you can't deliver a single anything. Mm -hmm. And I said, you are going to learn how to do it. And so I got myself a keyboard. I said, if you don't practice, it was a Yamaha $300 $300 keyboard. It was not a great keyboard. And I said, but it wasn't a horrible one. And, you know, if you don't practice this thing every day, 
for at least an hour a day, you just quit. Just don't even, you don't buy another keyboard, yeah. give it up because you're not serious. <laughs> There's no point even trying to do it if you're not going to do it. But I did it. And then when when you met me, those those copies I was making out of different fake books were to go to a Little Brook nursing home up in mm -hmm. the mountains from Clinton and to perform. Every week I performed a different set of standards of classic country from the 50s and 40s and other things from from a long I, I you know from a, a lot of different things but some very tricky songs different kinds of material a lot of classic country and i did a different set every week for 10 years mm -hmm. okay and that's how i that's how i i got myself together by by having a place to fail in front of an audience yeah and so over the years, I played in different people's bands in New York, and then I started my own material. I have musicians both in New York and out here that I perform with, and uh, mostly in New York, to be honest with you. And I, I recorded out here the basic tracks with uh, California, two, two California musicians, Robbie Bean on drum, Alex Baum on bass, mm -hmm. and then a lot of different guys played guitar and... Um, and and Crispin Seo from the Uptown Horns was mm -hmm. on uh, was on saxophone, and they yeah. toured with the Stones. He's, he's a really good you know, sax player. So, I mean, there's a couple of great guys. Arno Hecht also from the Uptowns is very noteworthy. So the first single that we sent out was the song "We're Going for a Ride." Mm -hmm. I used a, an independent promotional app to send it out, and it got over 250 stations playing it worldwide. Wow. Okay. There's this there was this world indie music art where it peaked at number twenty one and it was on that chart for two months and and this other chart out of Milan for Europe with like a hundred and fifty reporting stations it peaked at number nineteen on that chart and it got like over nine thousand spins in a th mm -hmm. th two three months so I consider that to be like a considerable success and i'm I'm very mm -hmm. pleased with the fact that what I did you know enough radio guys so it's good enough that they wanted to play it you know yeah yeah and uh, say that song again uh, song title again for us we're going we're going for a ride going for a ride <laughs> Apocalyptic. Uh, I, it, I tried to. I was trying to write a song about my feelings about COVID, and so I sort of wrote this song about this post-apocalyptic uh, land uh, land that we were living in. It was sort of more like things really had fallen apart in this song, you know. Um, and in the in the bridge, I go, a temporary problem needs a permanent solution. 
as the far horizon draws near, I'm trying to say that there's problems that we're having right now that are so severe, like mm -hmm. global warming and other things. But the song still has its own vibe. It's it's not a uh, it's it's not a, a, a like a, a, a preachy or, or mm -hmm. not a it's not a lecture. It's a song. Yeah, <laughs> very good, very good. I I think it's a fun album. I I listened to it a couple times. I mean, one of my favorites is it. "She Doesn't Love Him," which has I'm hearing maybe a '60s kind of feel. And the yeah. sax, I found I, mean, I, lo I love on that one. Well, I can see in her eyes she doesn't love him, but still we remain apart. Though her eyes never shine the way they used to, she won't forget the day I broke her heart. That's um, that's Crispin on sax. You know, when I wrote that song, I mean, I was playing a lot of Hank Williams at that time. I was very, mm -hmm. I'm very heavily influenced by Hank Williams, mm -hmm. and uh, and and it's got sort of a Hank Williams vibe. But but the the thing that triggered the song, where there's this French classic French movie called uh, Children of Paradise, which is one of the great movies, and in it, there's this well, there's this artist who goes to the gangster nightclub and he sees the woman that he's fallen in love with, one of the most beautiful women in Paris, hang out with the most murderous gangster mm -hmm. in Paris. And this guy who brought him into the nightclub goes, you should stop looking at them because you're going to get yourself killed mm -hmm. looking at the girl. And he goes, but can't you see? She doesn't love him. Like, uh -huh. so he thought he still had a chance. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, I'm going to write this song because that's, basic idea of someone but i changed it all around it's it's not a reiteration of the movie it's a it's like so many of the things that i write about a relationship that is either breaking up or has broken because <laughs> <laughs> that just seems to be a very fertile ground for songwriting now are you always writing songs or sent me a song i think last night called yeah, these days it's yeah, it just sounded like a demo. It. Maybe you were still working on it or something. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's me. It's a song demo. It's yeah. me, just me and the piano. Yeah. It, it's what I'm going to use when I come to New York in September. I've got a show at the Parkside Lounge in Manhattan on Houston Street on the 29th of September, and then I've mm -hmm. got another show on the 6th at a. a Otto's, which is a, uh, a, a, a bar club on 14th Street and Avenue B. And so I'm, I've used, I use that, these demos to show my band when I send them out be, like a month before the shows, I send mm -hmm. them material, both uh, charts of the material 
and some MP3 of the material, mm-hmm. and then you know, then we rehearse and we get ready for then this. Then they add, so, add their parts, and they add they kind of feed off of that. Yeah, well, we, yeah. Yeah, it, it, yeah, they get their idea of where it's going from. Yeah, yeah. from you know. So who else will you be playing with with uh, in those shows then coming up? Okay, well, the first show on the 29th, my band uh, consists of Nee Hussick, who's played with, with people and performed with people like Wilson Pickett and Darlene Love. She's a mm-hmm. great bass player. Uh, and then Dave Dunn, a fantastic drummer. He's a really, a really excellent drummer. Been on bands that had deals, and he's been in the New York music scene forever. Really fantastic. And uh, my guitar player, uh, Billy Pigeon, is a very bluesy guy. He everything about the blues, and mm-hmm. and it heavily in, uh, inflects his playing. Mm-hmm. And then the saxophone player. The first night is Crispin. Uh, the CO on the 29th, but he's busy on the 6th of October. So I have another guy playing with me, Robert Aaron, who's played with Blondie and mm-hmm. a bunch of like major, major artists. <laughs> and he is insanely talented, you know? So I'm very, and also um, one of the nights on the, 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 the ballad song um, on the album that I sent called um, uh, Voices from the Harbor. And I don't know if you checked out the Trump solo on there. The, the the trumpet player Volker Getz, who's yeah, an extraordinarily I, I, advanced musician, he was um, he went was trained by Stockhausen's son in Cologne, Germany, and so he's going to be sitting in as well. So I have a mixture of some very uh, different things in my music. I like things to be raw. Mm-hmm. I like an element of rawness in music that I love. It's hard for me to love music that doesn't have an element of excitement mm-hmm. and rawness. Which is why I went for the punk rock thing, and God probably, you probably guys probably will need to forgive for this, but also the hip hop thing. <laughs> and, um, well, and then, and no, then, uh, <laughs> you're, you're kidding. He's kidding. Whatever no, you like. I'm kidding. And, and um, it's all right. And, and then, you know, but I also am an admirer of some very advanced music. And <laughs> so I like to mix it up. You know, and and not just have like you know, and have different things happening. Part of why you know, I, I like to feel excited while I'm doing it. I also believe that it's all about excitement. If if rock and roll isn't exciting, then what the hell is it? You know, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it's got to be exciting. Yeah. That that's that's what I'm always shooting for when I when I do a live performance. Right. When people show, they they do want to hear something a little different. They do want to see. Uh, some uh, authenticity and a couple mistakes. They want it. They want it something a little different. Yes, we don't. We nobody wants to go and see it all all smooth and exactly like they expected. I can't understand people who go see shows that people are lip syncing. Yeah, <laughs> that's not music. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean that. That's very yeah. rare. I think you know as far, as far right. as rock and roll goes. But I have. Yeah, I have yeah. seen it. You know, look. But it's not just, it's not, my approach also is not just to avoid sterile perfectionism, which I I don't think I'm good enough to achieve Mm. sterile perfectionism, (laughs) but, but, but also to just be exciting. Start with three fast ones, Mm -hmm. you know, or at least two. I mean, be exciting. You know, don't just have it be like, you know, I'm I'm influenced, I'm, I'm influenced by early rock and roll artists like Little Rich. 
you know, um, and a lot of a, a lot of material out of New Orleans by uh, people like Alan Toussaint, you know, where I just it was exciting, you know, and then exactly. punk rock also was exciting. Rock and roll in the 60s was exciting. If you listen to like early Grateful Dead, they're fast and exciting. I mean, in other words, I just believe it has to be part of it. You can't leave that out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm thinking, of, uh, I'm thinking of this cassette tape that a friend of mine gave me, and he got it from his aunt, a generation beyond us. But it was it was a cassette of a recording uh, of Led Zeppelin. And so uh, the recording would have been somewhere probably in the UK in 1970. And uh, I'm listening to it after here in 1978, after hearing, uh, you know, the first four Led Zeppelin albums or something, I'm saying this is different. The people are kicking back and they're silent. And the, after each song, you know, they're applauding. But so so it was so, yeah. such a different kind of rock performance. Uh, and also there were some renditions of, of and, and I was feeling it being rhythm and blues and yeah. not the... That's it was very different for me, even at even at, at age fourteen. There, you know, or thirteen, I'm well, you know, hearing back. Yeah, what, I was lucky. I I got to see Led Zeppelin in '69, and yeah. it was so fabulous. They really were amazing. And then I also saw their show in Tampa in '74, which was the biggest concert up at point. In a, oh yeah, in a, I believe in, it. In a single venue, uh, the '69 show was a lot more exciting. Although the '74 show was still great, and so. And look, th- th- those first two records are, are so blues oriented, you know, and, and they're, they are my favorite Led Zeppelin records. But that's because that's those are my roots. You know, I grew up hearing this material. What do you, you remember know? from that 1969 concert? What's your feel or, or memory? I mean, I just I remember on um, uh, You Need Cooling, where oh. he's bowing the he's bowing the guitar. Mm-hmm. It's so effing great, okay? <laughs> the way he did it was so impressive. And the way the band brought it down and created this rhythm yeah. that was perfect for that for that part. Need me. It was I mean mm-hmm. it was just amazing. The whole thing was amazing. I was I was just I was and they got bad their first record was badly reviewed in Rolling Stone and a bunch of places. Mm. Wow. And, and I was like, nah, I'm like <laughs> You know, Page had been an obsession musician. He had come to New York. I mean, he was he was well known in England as a major session musician. And Dusty um, Springfield, my father had recorded Dusty in Memphis, one of mm-hmm. one of the great records. And she pulled a coat about Page putting the band together. And I can tell you that this sort of thing was not my father's cup of tea. He mm-hmm. was not a loud guitar guy. Okay, he <laughs> was a martial guitar guy. And um, but but because he knew how Dusty was totally immersed in the English rock scene, that's why the band. Wow! Wow! I didn't know that, <laughs> Paul. I have, I just wanted to know what your thoughts are on today's music industry, and if you're if you have any listen to any new music. I mean, I, I, honestly, I am so involved in what I do. Okay, mm-hmm. now I, I have listened. To, I have listened to some female hip hop recently because mostly I listen to things that can help me. In other words, I'm trying to get a good version together on the keyboard 
of Duke Ellington's 1928, 26, um, St. Louis Tudley do. It's extraordinarily difficult to mm-hmm. play well. You know? And so that's what is helping me. I focus mm-hmm. on things that can help me. Now, as far as today goes, I was a hip-hop guy, okay? I bought mm-hmm. Rapper's Delight 12-inch the week it came out because Jamaicans had been rapping for 10 years before that on mm-hmm. reggae records. And so I was familiar with the form, mm-hmm. and I thought it had validity. And, and so it has influenced so many things. I mean, every K-pop record has a section where one of these K-pop artists is flowing in, mm-hmm. in Korean. You know, I don't love K-pop. For me, it's well done. It people love it, um, and, and it, it seems overproduced. To be honest with you, that's my certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's but that's again. This is just my feelings. I, other people love it. Billions of people love it. And what am I? I, I remember I had a discussion with someone once where they were saying how all drum machines suck, and at the time, <laughs> Jamaican music being made by a lot of artists and influencing hip-hop and getting played in, in, in black clubs in general using drum machines. And I said, so what am I going to do? Go to a Jamaican club and get on the microphone and go, you people are idiots dancing to this music Yeah, when they're all better <laughs> dancers than I could ever be. It's like... <laughs> I, and the drum machine is playing in better time than anyone else. <laughs> well, that, that can be sterile too if it's not... Oh, done. I know it can be. But it was yeah. exciting, like when uh, when New Order came out, and 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 mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's just uh, it's just full on solid drum machine and, and interesting work. Yeah, I put a drum machine on this song called "Opposite Worlds" when I cut a single in L.A. with the San Francisco punk band The Mutants back in 1981, 82, 81, or maybe it was 80. It was a long time ago. It was, so I put a drum machine on a rock record because I thought it would be appropriate. There's still a live drummer. It was a mix of the two things. Oh, cool, cool. And, and, and but as far look, I know Taylor Swift is an enormous talent, okay? Mm-hmm. That she not only is a good songwriter, but that she also has incredible presence and vocal chops. And also she runs her shit like, like a boss. I mean, she... Mm-hmm. Yeah. She runs her, her financial and her music business trip in a way that maybe only like Barbara Streisand approximated in the day, mm-hmm. you know, so, so I admire that, you know, I, I, and, 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 and I have friends who, who think she's a, a truly amazing, and I think her songwriting is really, now, I was vacationing with, with our, my, my, our granddaughter at a, in Ohio at, at this island, Kelly's Island in Lake Erie, and she brought three of her 13-year-old friends. And so we were driving around the property. Each one of the girls got to have this golf cart we had. And, of course, they'd never driven, so they were having the time of their lives. Yeah. And they're blasting this hip-hop by these different current female artists. A lot of it was very, very blue or filthy mm-hmm. yeah you know oh, yeah. I mean, it was very explicit. I know. and i said i said to our granddaughter and maddie maddie do, do your parents know you're listening to this sort of thing <laughs> and she's like yeah and so i'm like you know what and and i and i listened to it you know what some of it was pretty good as far as hip-hop mm-hmm. goes you know so so my feeling is is that i i'm just too i'm too focused on what i need to do next to yeah. to spend a, a lot of time you know, in other words, like Mike, I try to either be writing or playing 
for hours every day. Yeah. You know, or doing yeah. something involved with my craft. And, and, and I, I hate to use the word art, but what I'm trying to do. And so any time that I would spend like going through what's going on currently would be time that I'd probably be taking away from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Now, I mean, every once in a while, I think of, of together a tune where I, I, I rap, I can rap Jamaican style, but I, <laughs> but I, so far I haven't done it. Yeah. You don't okay. want to scare the people. <laughs> they, they would be shocked. Whoa. Yeah. Throw that you in know, the middle well, of you your set. Yeah. exactly yeah. i think about it though and and you know maybe someday i'll do it you never yeah. know mm-hmm. <laughs> oh that's great so paul it that was great good talking to you today yeah it was great. my pleasure it's my pleasure thank you matt yeah thank you, thank you. great yeah. to meet you virtually I... my kitty says goodbye <laughs> whoever can <laughs> <laughs> all right guys have that's a good great. one all right. if i'm back right. in the area i'll give you a holler oh yeah Thanks. If I'm ever on the on the, on yeah. the side of Jersey, which, which is definitely a possibility, I'll, I'll buy you lunch or something. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Be good. been listening to no good music today's interview was produced and edited by rob j Lilly and recorded via zoom at the did you say seven studios in washington new jersey you can find no good music on apple Podcasts, podbean spotify pandora and almost anywhere you listen to podcasts the song's trembling we're going for a ride she doesn't love him and voices from the harbor use with permission from paul wexler